everybody. Welcome to another episode of Cheeky Geeky. I am Monet. And I'm Autogill. And I'm really excited about this episode. We are, this is, this episode is titled Lovecraft, Shelley, and more. And we are going to be talking about our boners for classic horror literature. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I, I only technically have, I have a girl boner for, for, uh, for, for one. Yes, which we'll yes, So I went to social media and I got some responses on my personal page. Um, nobody responded on our social medias. I, I posed the question to my personal though and I got a couple people that responded Bonded. Um, my friend Michelle, uh, who's not a huge horror person, is a huge fan of Dracula. And I wanted to start with uh, Dracula because Bram Stoker is really, in my opinion, the forefather of horror, uh, especially the vampire genre. Um, he paved the way for... You know, he paved the way for Cassandra Clare's um, Mortal Instruments. He paved the way for, um, I, I hate to speak her name, Anne Rice. <laughs> um, he, he paved the way you know, for, for Buffy the Vampire Slayer. You know, he paved the way for a lot of vampire stuff that is central to a pop culture in today's modern world. Well, I mean, you got to ask yourself one thing. When you say the word vampire, word association, what is the first thing that comes to mind? And usually that's one word and that's Dracula. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, that that's some legacy. And if you talk about, you know, the, monster movies and you know that whole genre um while you do think of frankenstein and phantom and all those people the the main guy is dracula so yeah and dracula himself has popped up everywhere there was an entire episode of buffy the vampire slayer dedicated to dracula um, you know, he, Dracula is the most famous vampire in the world. Um, I don't think any fictional character even holds a torch to the kind of weight that Dracula carries. And he was based on a real person. He was based on Vlad the Impaler. I know. <laughs> So, I mean, you have to talk about Bram Stoker as, like, the forefather of the horror genre. Because with his novel Dracula, that's really how the horror genre got started. Yes, you had your your typical ghost stories that people would make up and tell each other. But if you look at literature, you really didn't have anything 
in the horror genre that was concrete and held until Dracula came along. And then after Dracula, you had Mary Shelley writing Frankenstein. Then you had H.P. Lovecraft with his Cthulhu anthologies and Poe and all the way up to modern literature with Stephen King. I mean, the, the ripple effect that Bram Stoker has is astronomical and quite frankly, oh. extremely impressive. Sure, when also you have to ask yourself, while there were others that came before him, as far as modern writing, modern, basically anything modern and creative when it comes to horror goes to him versus things that may have come before him. Yeah, he's, he's the one that, that really stuck. And I think because... The characters that he created are so relatable. You can relate to them, and when you relate to them, when you're reading his work, though his work becomes a metaphor for things that you've experienced in your own life. And I think that genuinely terrifies people. There are, there are people in our lives who become a villain. And when you think of them, you tend to think to the horror genre of how they treated you, why they're your own personal monster. And there's more than a couple people in my life that I would associate as being a personal Dracula for myself. Um, most of them are high school bullies. Um, not even high school, middle school and high school bullies. Um, I would even consider my ex-husband to be a personal Dracula for myself. Um, he, he entranced me and he literally sucked the life out of me. I, I was in some really dark places when I was with him and when I left him. So... Dracula isn't only a thing that we can fear, it's also a thing that we can associate with reality in the people that have come in and out of our lives. I also think part of it has to do with he is and seems so real. He almost seems like the devil where he can be seductive even though he is very, very sinister. Mm -hmm. Um where he can convince you of things, um, mind you, what happened in the book and how he evolved the two different things, uh, still, the character traits were there enough to inspire different feelings and emotions. Yeah. One of my favorites, um, I, I really like listening to the audio drama uh, with Tom Hiddleston in it. Um, the name of it is details escape me let me let me consult let me consult audible because I have it on audible I listen to it frequently not just because of Tom Hiddleston but because it is one of my favorite um oh that wasn't supposed to happen (laughs) you guys got a little sound clip there um yeah, it's the um, BBC full cast radio dramatization by Liz Lockhead. 
And I listened to it because it is probably one of the best uh, retellings of Bram Stoker's Dracula that I've ever heard. It's... But will he be the first one to touch you, to bed you? <laughs> I had to. Yeah. That, that's not from Dracula, though. That's from the Red Necklace. I know, I know. <laughs> but... But... I associate them in that one way. So leave me alone. It is my mental fan fiction that he's having an orgy with vampires and, and something. Yeah. So, yeah, Dracula is really where this the start of what we consider the classic horror genre really got its start and kicked off. Um... I know you're. I know you're biting at the bit. So let go ahead. Let, let's talk about Gaston Leroux and Phantom of the Opera. <laughs> <laughs> well, lo- looking at timelines, uh, Dracula came out around 1897, um, and Phantom of the Opera uh, by Gaston Leroux. Um, came out around 1909, 1910. Um, and I, I find it interesting that it was in another language. And even though it was, they took it and they made it into an English movie. Um, the silent movie with Lon Chaney. Um, I've read the book. I've also read... I want to say reworks of the book um, where it isn't the original novel uh, translated to English, but it's more, you know how the Bible gets like reworked and retranslated. I've read stuff like that as well. Um, And a lot of these books have that. Um, And it's something that I've noticed in a lot of these type of books around that time where they create an atmosphere and they create something that will scare you, but it doesn't need to be, while it's descriptive, overly gory, if that makes sense. Like, there is violence, there is action, there is gore to a point, uh, but they do it in a way that seems... I don't want to use the word classy, but that's the only word association that I can use. And it's not just Gaston LaRue or Bram Stoker, but a lot of the books like this of that era, um, as far as uh, those few decades. Yeah. Um, Phantom of the Opera by Gaston LaRue has also... um has also um, had a huge impact on pop culture um, in modern times. Um, In the 1930s, you had um, the Phantom of the Opera silent film with Lon Chaney. Um, You've had multiple um, films made. Um, There was one in, I think it was the, late nine, late eighties, early nineties. And then you have, uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber who romanticized it with the musical. <laughs> and that is really when Phantom of the Opera exploded. 
I'm sorry for the sound there. Um, Monet, I'm sorry. I love you. It's okay. I love you, Monet. You know what's coming. Yeah, go on. Okay, first I have to be transparent. Besides me being a huge Phantom fangirl, um, my final uh, paper in uh, English when I was in college was this whole persuasive essay that was super long and involved Lon Chaney. Um, so besides the key ones that you have listed, there are actually tons of iterations of Phantom of the Opera, just like Dracula, just like Frankenstein. Um, you have the 1925-1926 silent one with Lon Chaney Sr. You have the, I want to say it's either 43 or 46 with uh, Claude Rain. Um, there was the uh, Hammer Horror one from, I want to say, the 60s. Um, the Robert England version, which it, the weird thing is, it is the closest one to the book besides the silent film, even though it has some weird, it was going to be a two-parter and had crap in the uh, modern day that we won't talk about. Um, <laughs> you have spinoffs like the Song of Midnight, which is some, I think it's, uh, I think it's Japanese, but um, my point is, my point is, before I go into, uh, into the deep hole of Phantom. Um, all of these books have so many different iterations. And you'll notice if, uh, if you basically take a book and translate it to a different media, such as film or television or music or video games or whatever, that you could have this one story and someone retell it and a different person retell it and you'll have two separate, completely different entities. I'm sorry. I love you. <laughs> you don't have to apologize. I was a good girl, kind of. Yeah. But, I mean, he's, um, in Santa, the opera has inspired a lot of things. Um, the main inspiration for Tuxedo Mask and Sailor Moon was Phantom of the Opera. Yep. I mean, it's just... But that's all of these type of stories, though. Yeah. Yeah. Um... I mean, like, take Mary Shelley and the creation of a monster. How, basically playing God, how many different things, and unless you actually looking for it, you want to instantly translate, oh, well, it's an homage or it's whatever to Mary Shelley, but is someone playing God for one reason or another? Yeah. And that is really interesting that you put it that way, because in Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, Dr. Frankenstein is the monster. And when you look at, like, Jurassic Park, they're playing God. They create these dinosaurs, and everyone's, oh, the dinosaurs are the monsters. No, it's the people who created the monsters that are the, di that are the real monsters, just like in Frankenstein. Yeah, I mean, like, J Jurassic Park, that's a great example of, yeah, you, you're not thinking Frankenstein when you're watching Jurassic Park, I can tell you that much. No. Um, actually, I did a report on it in middle school, uh, comparing Jurassic Park and Frankenstein, 
And there are so many similarities, so many similarities that it's just, it's incredible. It's just, my concluding statement for that essay was that Jurassic Park was just a modern retelling of Frankenstein. And now everybody who listens to this the next time they watch Jurassic Park is going to sit there, watch Jurassic Park, and they're going to say, holy shit, Monet is right. Because <laughs> you are. Yeah. And that's like, the, that's the whole theme of Jurassic Park. Everyone that they've made is either that or the fallout of that. Yeah. And I mean, in in the original Frankenstein, everybody thought, oh, the the creation is the monster. No. The creation is not the monster. The creation is reacting to the environment around it. Frankenstein... Yeah, I mean, it didn't ask to be created. It, exactly. It didn't ask to be created. It didn't ask to be treated like a monster. And when you're treated like a monster, eventually, what are you going to do? You're going to act like it. And, and that's actually part of the plot of Phantom of the Opera. It is. I hate to say it, but it, he was just a man, and, you know, where Dracula, it's like, okay, well, what makes this, what are their motives? And yes, they tried to romanticize it in a lot of different versions, but if you look like, you look at Frankenstein, he, he didn't have to be created the Phantom, Eric, did not ask to be born without a nose and, you know, creepy looking. And, you know, he is, like Frankenstein, he is a product of how he was treated. He grew up in a circus exactly. where he was treated as a disfigured freak. He was treated as a monster because people expected him to be a monster because he was, he didn't fit conventional beauty standards. And what did he become? He became the monster everyone expected him to be. I, I do have to admit, um, at the end, and I, I don't mean to say, like, spoilers, but at the end of Phantom, there is this section where he takes off his mask and um, <clears throat> the Persian, you know, he sees him crying. This is before he dies. And it's so emotional that, Let's say you did view him throughout the whole thing as a villain, um, which he is depicted as such. You actually feel for him, making him almost seem like, um, I forget the words, Monet, help me. Relatable? Relatable, basically a sympathetic villain. Yeah. Which, while it's become popularized, within the last few uh, few decades, wasn't the case then. No. Where in the original Phantom of the Opera, they had to change the ending uh, where the mob got him because that is how people of that time viewed uh, people like him, that yes, he must be destroyed. Mm -hmm. um, where in the end of that movie, the original one, he died of a broken heart. Um, and even, but I'll stop fangirling. And you know, in the musical, um, he doesn't even he doesn't even die in the musical version. He just disappears. We, we, we ain't talking about no no Phantom of Manhattan. 
Manhattan. Okay. You don't want to talk about Love Never Dies? Okay, we we need to talk about that, but only for a moment, and here is why. Um, Andrew Lloyd Webber left an open ending of that musical, and he was working with this author to make a book that would become the sequel to Phantom and later a musical. Um, And in at least... Funny story here! Um, In the start of that, it basically is trying to convince you the Phantom is real, that Gaston LaRue was a hack. The book is horrible, and I actually drew some art for the Phantom Reviewer, who used to be a fairly uh, big, at least in the Phantom community on YouTube, for their video. Yeah. (laughs) And He read the book where I could not stand the first 10 pages. And I can tell you that it it pisses on Gaston LaRue's grave. And uh, we won't get more into that. See, I I love Love Never Dies. It it has a lot of plot holes and and a lot of inconsistencies with Weber's original play. But... I really like the songs. The songs are absolutely beautiful. And the dynamics between the Phantom and Christine, in my opinion, are the way things should have gone in the original musical. And I'm saying it that way because I don't want to spoil the ending for anybody who wants to look it up on their own. Okay, well, I I got a question for you, because, yes, I do enjoy Love Never Dies. I I don't want to admit that, but I will. Um, But I got a question to ask you, because we're talking about, you know, the original original book translated into a musical that got a sequel based on a book that called the original book a hack. Does, in the musical, Raul get shot in the dick, and that's why he can't have kids, yes or no? I, I don't remember him ever getting shot. In the dick. Specifically, okay, in the balls. <clears throat> Did it anywhere in that musical, before the rewrites, after the rewrites, did he get shot in the nuts? Not that I'm aware of. No, it didn't happen. But in the book it did. Among other things. Interesting. My cat. Well, yeah, Gaston LaRue's a hack, apparently. My cat's um, down but I guess... saying hi to everybody. I got a question for you, though. How are your feelings where someone, whoever it may be, takes these stories and attempts to rewrite them um, in a different way? Such as, for example... Um, the best example I can give you is the Susan Kay's Phantom, where she took the original play, I mean, she took the original book by Gaston LaRue, incorporated some things from the Andrew Lloyd Webber play, and told a fairly interesting story, um, weaving the two together. How do you feel about pieces like that? I... I honestly have no opinion on them because I don't read them. 
I think that original works should stay original works. The only reason I'm fine with Andrew Lloyd Webber romanticizing it is because he was doing it to um, put it into a play. Yes, he changed a lot of aspects of the original product. However, he created something that is... a mainstay in pop culture. Well, I think it's, it's not even that. It's more it's being translated into a different medium. Yes, that's, that's uh, where I was trying to go. Versus a book. Right. Because Gaston LaRue's story as a musical would be awful. Yeah, well, you know, it kind of got made. I, I forget the name at the moment, yeah, but it was I, more related. I know that it is in existence out there. I saw it once, and I hated it. And I tried to block it from my memory. Like, I just prefer yeah. to not think about it. <laughs> so, let's... So we Let's move on. Um, this is something that I I know very little about, but it intrigues me a lot. And the only reason why I haven't uh, that why I haven't gone more into it is because access. Because a lot of the, a lot of the current productions of this work, of these works, are either abridged or changed. And I am more interested in the original raw material. And we're talking about H.P. Lovecraft, uh, specifically the Cthulhu anthologies. Gonna be honest, not too well versed in that. Yeah. Um, I, I see uh, Cthulhu pops up in a lot of places. Um, spoiler alert for anybody who has not seen this uh, very recent film. However, this spoiler might actually intrigue you enough to see the movie. Um, the movie Underwater with Kristen Stewart. It came out uh, late last year, early this year, uh, somewhere around there. Um, the monster that they encounter is Cthulhu. That has been confirmed by the production team of the film and when you're watching the movie and you're seeing this creature you you can just tell oh that's Cthulhu. I find it interesting I think a lot of different people feel this way or have a similar experience where of the other ones they've probably been quite well versed at least to a point where if you take a character in a story such as Cthulhu you know him from other places besides his original work. Yeah. 
Um, a lot of people don't realize that the Necronomicon is created by H.P. Lovecraft. Um, the Necronomicon. I can tell you, I is, did not. The Necronomicon is often associated with uh, satanic re uh, satanic religions. Um, it is also often associated with uh, black magic practitioners. It was created by H.P. Lovecraft, and it is part of the. Cthulhu anthologies. I have my I have my own copy of the Necronomicon. This episode's educational. Yes. Um. There's a video game that um, features a lot of inspiration from Cthulhu. Uh, I can't think of the name. I played it at a friend's house. Um, and he said that it was based on the Cthulhu. Um, I'm trying to Google and find out what it is. Um, because a lot of people probably aren't even, have played it and probably haven't even made the connection. Um, here we go. Uh, the game's not, the video game's not in here. Um, but I found a list of games on Wikipedia of, um, games that are based on works by H.P. Lovecraft. You've got, uh, Anchorhead, Bloodborne, uh, You've got three Call of Cthulhu games, uh, the original Dark Corners of the Earth and Wasted Land. That one's kind of a given, though, because it's literally Call of Cthulhu. Um, Canarium. Uh, you've got Darkest Dungeons, Darkness Within 2, The Dark Lineage, Darkness Within, The Pursuit of Loath Nolder. Uh, you have The Edge of Nowhere, uh, El Viento, Eldritch, the Eldritch video game. Um, you have The Hound of Shadow. Uh, Mag Runner, Dark, Dark Pulse. Uh, you have ne Necronomicon, The Dawning of Darkness, uh, Prisoner of Ice. Uh, the Secret World, Shadow of the Comet, Sherlock Holmes, The Awakened, The Shrouded Isle, The Sinking City, uh, Splatterhouse is also listed there. Wait, Splatterhouse is real? Yes. Wow. I want to say... The video game Dark Souls is the one that I played that had an H.P. Lovecraft session section. Yeah, I, I have to admit I am salty because, like, Dracula has a bunch of games, including ones that, and I, I shit you not, um, when the Bram Stoker Dracula came out, you know, with um, Gary... Yeah. This game company was oh, too Moons cheap to rent the rights. Hold on, Moons of Madness um, is H.P. Lovecraft. I kind of turned my nose up at that one. I'm going to have to check that one out. Definitely. This is why I'm so interested, I'm as interested in Lovecraft as I am. Because he... Cthulhu pops up everywhere in video games. 
Oh, definitely. Um, Quake? And really? I mean, the other other carriers... Every, I can't talk. Every other character does minus Phantom of the Opera. Like I was saying about the Dracula one... There is a video game that they were too cheap to rent the movie rights to, so they rented the book rights of Bram Stoker's Dracula. And it says, you know, from the book, not the movie, when it came out. <laughs> That's funny. Um... Then you have stuff like Castlevania and then lots of stuff. I can't find anything confirming it, but I'm... I'm fairly certain that Dark Souls has a section uh, for Lovecraft. That sounds right. I think it was... Let's see. This would have been the game that was released on... Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure Dark Souls does have some connections. I was going to say that. Um, but again, I haven't really um, played Dark Souls, even though I want to. Yeah, I think it's the original. Because I played it, it would have been 2011 that I played it. My friend had just gotten it brand new. So yes, it was definitely Dark It was definitely... The first one, um, yeah, because even even when you're dead, you can die. <laughs> That's how I remember, because there there's levels of Dark Soul where you die, you can still fight and everything, and even though you're dead, you can still die. And it's when you die again that you get sent, if I'm remembering it correctly, I could be remembering it all wrong, but I think it's if you die while you're dead, that's when you get sent to the Cthulhu realm. Or that Cthulhu realm could be completely, I, I could be getting everything mixed up, but I'm like 99% sure that it is Dark Souls. If it's not Dark Souls, then it's Demon Soul. But I don't think it's Demon Soul. Because I don't remember ever playing that but yeah so yeah. I would love to get my hands on the older copies of Lovecraft's work um I have this book here called uh chilling horror short stories it's got some Lovecraft in it but I was looking through them and you can tell by looking through them that it's that the language has been changed for more modern telling, and I just feel like it's distracted that it detracts from Lovecraft. Like you can't just update the language of Lovecraft. Just like with Edgar Allan Poe, I have a lot of issues with reprinting of Poe's work because somewhere in the mid two thousands they started updating Poe's language, and it detracts so much from how Poe wrote that 
it's not enjoyable to me because I feel like I've lost an element of what I'm supposed to be reading. Like, this chilling horror short stories has a couple things from Poe in it. It's got Mask of the Red Death, uh, which is one of my favorite things. Um, it has the premature burial, and it's got more of an updated language. And it does, a, I, I feel like having read having read them the way Poe wrote them back in school, you lose an element of the elegance of the styling that is Edgar Allan Poe. And that's what I was talking about earlier where they rework the language and it's especially bad when it's English to English because then, for example, there should be nothing lost in translation, and them using the excuse of, well, it's too hard to read, um, just seems like a cop-out. It is, and it, it's taking away an element of old English culture. You know, I really, really, really hate, with a burning, loathing passion updated versions of Shakespeare for the exact same reason. Yeah. I hate the updated versions of classic horror literature. Even any, any classic literature, whether it's horror or romance or drama. Um, I got, I was at the bookstore before lockdown started and everything closed and I was flipping through a collection of Jane Austen and it was told in contemporary language and I wanted to rip the pages and burn them because it wasn't Jane Austen anymore. And that's one of the reasons why I think classic horror literature isn't getting the attention that it used to get before the 90s is because everything's being updated to contemporary English. And it seems to have lost its charm. It really has. If you can update something and it can hold its charm, that is absolutely fantastic. I read an updated version of Tolstoy's Anna Kiriana, and it was beautiful, even in its contemporary English. Mind you, it was contemporary British English, so that might have been the difference, but it was still beautiful and it didn't detract from what I had read as a child. Yeah. Um, but they're, they're butchering these beautiful pieces of literary works. Because they have to update it because children aren't getting the education that they used to get. That's really what it boils down to. You know, I watched in school, I watched students say, oh, I don't like to read. And my teachers would come up with alternate projects for them. Oh, well, if you don't like to read, then then do do a report on this movie or do a report on this video game 
or something like that. It's like, no, force that kid to read. But reading's hard. I hate when people say that because reading is super easy. If you're taught at a young age to read. I started learning how to read when I was 18 months old. I wasn't even two years old yet. And I could distinguish between cat and dog and stuff like that. I didn't fully understand it. But by the time I was two years old, I could read the spot books, the, the C-spot, the C-spot books. I could, I could read those by the time I was two years old. Well, I will tell you some, as something as someone on the other side of the spectrum where I did have, uh, I am dyslexic, I do have a bit of a reading disability, that even though that does set me back and make everything a bit harder for me to read. Um, due to my surroundings, I was instilled a joy of books where I wanted to challenge myself. Um, for example, when I did take the undertaking of reading Gaston LaRue and, and Susan Kay's, um, it was something that I knew would be a challenge but their works are written in a way that I wanted to see the story that they had to tell, where a lot of modern things or modernized things, um, and mind you, Susan K is modern, um, don't seem to have that allure or seduction. We've lost a way of using our words to inspire what comes next. And people today do have that ability, um, for example, yourself, but it's not something that most people have the ability to express, even if they have the talent. Yeah. Uh, we're going to pause here for a second. Uh, we are way, way overdue for a commercial break. So we're going to do our ad break and we will be right back. And we're, <laughs> and we're back from the ad break. So going on uh, to what you were saying before that, um, I was diagnosed with dyslexia when I was 26 years old. The reason it took so long for me to get diagnosed is because my mom was dyslexic and she taught me how to read the way she knows how the way she knew how to read. So, from the time I was 18 months old, I was learning the alphabet and everything the way she already knew it. And while, yes, she did me a great service by doing that, she also did me a great disservice by doing that. Because when you go to the eye doctor and you're getting diagnosed with dyslexia, they're figuring it out with how you look at letters, not numbers. I've always had a hard time in math because my, because the way my mom taught me how to read, the dyslexia wasn't presenting itself in my reading. It was presenting itself in my math because the, the numbers were getting jumbled up, especially when you started throwing in letters. 
And by the, when I was 27 years old, I was, I was, uh, working two jobs that required me to use numbers 80% of the time. And, um, I went to the eye doctor and I was like, I, I don't know what's wrong. I said, but I'm really struggling with these numbers. I had these same problems in high school. I, I don't know what's wrong. And the doctor changed the eye chart from alphabetical to numerical and 20 minutes later looked at me and he says it's because you have dyslexia no one's told you and I says no (laughs) I didn't know until then that my mom was even dyslexic because I called I got out of the appointment I called my aunt I says hey auntie Apparently, I'm dyslexic and didn't know about it. And she's like, well, it doesn't surprise me. Your mom was dyslexic, too. (laughs) Wow. So, I have a a very unique outlook on this whole... Well, I I don't like to read because of dyslexia. Being diagnosed dyslexic and loving to read and write as much as I do has firmly implanted me and that is not a viable excuse for not wanting to read. Anybody who tells me that they don't want to read, I automatically assume is... uh, I automatically assume does not have a creative mind and is lazy. I necessarily put it as lazy... Um, there's a lot of different factors where were they enabled? Were they, for example, um, it's too hard, but you don't have to do it like you said. Yeah. Where I got into reading by first finding things that I wanted to read. When it came to, hey, here's this book, do a book report. I didn't want to read it. You know, I would check it out, see if it was something interesting to me, and if it wasn't, I'm going to be honest, I didn't read it. Where, for example, Harry Potter, something like that, or even, like, magazines that involve wrestlers or comic books, um, if it interests me, I would read it. So, I got a question for you. To stay on topic, I do have a question for you. Okay. Because... Retro things are coming back. It's the fad. Um, has been for quite some time. Do you think storytelling in the way that these people did it a hundred years, well, over a hundred years ago now, do you think that we may see a renaissance of these type of stories given the fact that um like we have stuff like Freddy or Jason or Saw where people just view it as horror is gore or do you think that people, at least on a large scale, will ever go back to creating stuff like this? I sincerely hope so. Horror should not be about how grossed out you can make a person. Horror should be about how thoroughly terrified you can make a person. It's not about jump scares. It's about how they feel hours and days after experiencing the product. 
I have not had a movie thoroughly terrify me since I was 11 years old and watched The Exorcist for the first time. I had nightmares for weeks. That movie thoroughly terrified me to the bone. I was talking about it with my therapist for months after I saw it. I strive to be scared like that again. But all of these horror films, they're relying on jump scares. Like, oh, I gotta scare you right now. Oh, see that? You're scared. And they think, oh, this would make a great movie because look how many times I made somebody jump. No, it's not about how many, how many times you can make somebody jump within a two-hour time frame. It's about how they feel after the movie. While I was watching The Exorcist, I wasn't scared at all. I wasn't scared until I went upstairs to go to bed. That is what true horror should be about. It should be about how the person feels after the experience. So I, I sincerely think hope that we get back to that because I so sincerely, I, I so thoroughly want to be scared like that again. I want to be so scared that I cannot sleep. Well, I think part of it does have to do with being overly exposed as well. Whereas, um, now mind you, my, my father is 78. Um, he's told me, because he has a love of, you know, the old, um, the old Universal movie monsters, where he was not allowed to go to Frankenstein because it was too scary, and his brother told him how people were feigning in the aisles, screaming, uh, different things like that, just from the visuals and the story. Yeah. I definitely agree oversaturation is a problem. However, we can get past that. We have more of an understanding of the human psyche than any generation before us. There is absolutely no reason why somebody can't create a work of horror that thoroughly terrifies people. I, I'm going to be completely honest with you. Low key, I hope that person is me. That is my well, personal you certainly issue. do have that is a my talent for invoking emotions. I do have and a I, final I, chapter. <laughs> Nobody was expecting that twist ending of DOE. Nobody! And I started planting seeds long before it came. <laughs> I've gotten so much hate mail over that. <laughs> but you know what? You know what? It it got emotions, and there are very like take take Harry Potter, what we talked about last month. Um, that really didn't invoke emotion, like it does, but not not the overwhelming emotion. Yeah. For the most part, it's an adventure. You enjoy it, but stuff like DOE, stuff like what we're talking about right now, Lovecraft, all that stuff, it's designed to invoke 
uh, deeper emotions because you're happy, okay, you're, you're happy. You know, happiness yeah. is nice, but it takes a lot more to tap into the mind and make them feel those top-level things. Somebody that does a thoroughly good job of doing that is Edgar Allan Poe, especially with the tap oh, yeah. heart. My, my dad, English teacher, middle school, read that to us in a way that it creeped me out for so long. My dad, I was first introduced to the Telltale Heart. I was 10 years old. My dad told the story to me, my stepmom, and my stepsister on our way up to the summer cabin. And he told it in such a way that I thought he was telling me a story from before he got married to my mom. And I'm not going to lie, my stepsister and I both wanted to jump out of that car because we thought we were in, in the car with a homicidal maniac. As I said, delivery. Yeah. And most people don't got it nowadays. And it, it took me about three weeks. To actually trust my father and what actually, what eventually, you know, what eventually made it click to me that, oh, my dad is telling the truth is he bought me my first book of Poe collection, my, my first collection <laughs> of, of Poe's work. And he pointed out the story and he says, this is the story that I told you in the car on vacation. Do you believe me now that I am not a murderer? And I read it, and I says, okay, I believe you. <laughs> oh, that is legend. And that is when my start of classic literature actually started. And a lot of people don't consider Edgar Allan Poe classic literature because, oh, he, he wrote poems. So what? And short stories. You don't need to write a 300-page novel to be considered classic literature. Also, you don't need to write something that long and still get a point in a story and a narrative across. Exactly. I mean, look at creepypastas. You know, those stories can be read within five minutes. You... Go to Reddit. You've got Reddit threads of two-sentence horror stories. And so a lot of them are... So creepypastas are the modern-day equivalent? Yes. Yes, creepypastas are definitely the modern-day equivalent. Um, I've written a creepypasta. Um, I have to find it. When I find it, I will read it as a bonus episode. Um, and I won't listen to it because then I'll get nightmares. <laughs> it's about it's about I love you. It's about skinwalkers. Yeah, how about no? Skinwalkers See, Skinwalkers the... absolutely petrify me. Yeah, you see while I love these type of stories, I do have to take them in moderation and be picky and choosy. Yeah. Just cuz if they get in my head and mind you, yes, you want them to. It's like, 
oh my god, I can't sleep, I can't think, there's someone going to kill me. I had a movie that really got in my head, and it's not that it scared me, it's that it disturbed my soul. Is that the one that you PM'd me about? Yes. That I'm not looking up ever? Yes. Uh, the film is called A Serbian Film, and it should not exist. The, oh, you mean like the human centipede? The, the, this makes the human centipede look like Barney. Yep, we're never talking about that I again. Spent, so, young lady. I spent 10 years trying to get my hands on a Serbian film because people told me that it was the most terrifying film that they had ever seen, and it is. it was banned in... At least 32 countries. The other night, I finally got a hold of it. Legally. I legally got a hold of it. And... The fact that so many people enjoy the film... Is disturbing. Because of the content that is within the film itself. I am not going to go into details on this podcast. I do not ever suggest anybody watch this movie. If you want to look up this film and see what it's about, that is on you. I ask you to trust me when I say that is something you should probably not do. I wish I had before I seen the film. Because had I known what I was walking into when I rented the film, I probably would not have rented it. I did not sleep for three days after watching that film, not because I was scared, but because the most disturbing scenes of that movie would play on my would play in my mind on repeat. I just looked up the uh, the, uh, the 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 brief description, and yeah, I think I'm good. Yeah. I think I'm good. No, I'm not going into the Wikipedia. I'm, I'm good on... Th- thank you, IMDb. I'm good. Yeah, the trivia on the IMDb will... It lists one of the most disturbing scenes. There's another one at the very end. There's two more at the very end of the movie that are on that same level as what is talked about on the IMDb trivia. If you go into the um, reviews left by users, there are users that go into more details. Um, but Wikipedia does it in a much more sensitive manner than IMDb does. That's why when I was telling you about it, I suggested you look at the Wikipedia page instead of linking you the IMDb page because Wikipedia is much more delicate about telling you what happens in the film. So if anybody yeah, is, yeah, is interested in, in looking at what I have seen, um, I do not ever suggest watching this film. I'm not even going to tell anybody where I found it. But if you're interested and you want to find it on your own, that's great. More power to you. Just please look at the Wikipedia page so you know what you're getting yourself into. 
There is a reason it has been banned in 32 countries. And when I found out that at one point it was on Netflix after watching the film, I, I, I was completely shocked that it had ever been available on Netflix. Um, as soon as the credits started rolling on this film, I started puking. I have never watched a... Well, ABCs of Death made me puke. But that was because, um, that's because one of the segments was depicting something that I had tried to do to myself, and it just, it really just kind of fucked with my brain. But this is the first movie that has ever made me puke because of how disgusting it is and how absolutely revolting I found it. And it didn't scare me. It, it did not scare me. It disturbed me. And there is a definitive line between scared and disturbed. I do not ever want to be disturbed. I do not strive to be disturbed. I strive to be terrified. And a Serbian yeah. film, a Serbian film crosses that line between what should scare you, and what disturbs you. Well, many have lost the, uh, the line there. Where there is no line, they think that that and things like that, oh, well, that's horror, where it's not, it's not even like the Jason Freddy stuff, where I watched Freddy, I could not sleep for three days. Mm. Um, it's not even like that. It's just snuff and what whatever else it is. And I think I think that started with Rob Zombie in all honesty. Really? Rob Zombie released his films as terrifying and really are, really all they are is gore fests. And I really think Rob Zombie redefined horror as not what you can scare people with, but how gross you can make it because people being grossed out is scary. Yeah. Because I, I notice I've, I've been a horror film buff my entire life. Films didn't get in your face gory until Rob Zombie. And it's almost a shame. Freddy and Jason have elements that, to the right person, could be terrifying. Even without all of the violence in the films. Just the basis of Freddy Krueger alone. Some guy that only attacks you while you're sleeping, while you're most vulnerable. That's terrifying. I personally never uh -huh. found the movies scary. I, I think they're cool. I really enjoy watching the movies. I don't think they're terrifying. I don't think they're scary at all. They're entertaining to me. Well, it's one of those things where I call it cutting the fat, and it's where you take any kind of story and any kind of media, and if you strip away certain elements, do you still have the same product? While those things may enhance it, um, can the concept stand on its own? I think 80 slasher films really created a, a mindset that the only thing that scares people is being hacked to death. 
is being murdered gruesomely. Because if you look at paranormal movies, modern day paranormal movies, there's still violence and gore. There's still violence and gore. These ghosts are causing physical harm to people. 80s slasher genre changed the mindset of horror and then Rob Zombie upped the ante and gave birth to the horror that we know within the last 15-20 years. Nothing holds a candle anymore to the horror of classic literature. These stories are stunningly beautiful. They are eloquent, and when read as intended, they can be bone-chilling. I read, I read Poe's work, even as an adult, even though I know them frontwards and backwards, and I still get chills. They still stay with me. They don't scare me anymore. Because I know what to expect, and I know it's not real. But they bring an element of almost security. Because they take me back to a time when I was innocent and these stories did scare me. Odogu? I I forgot what I was going to (laughs) say. I know, I suck. <laughs> oh. So do we want to just talk about what next week, next month's episode is? I think so, I'm sorry. <laughs> so next month's episode is Tables to Screen, The Evolution of RPGs. Basically, we're going to talk about how role-playing games went from Tabletop Dungeons and Dragons to massive multiplayer online games such as World of Warcraft. Um, I played one campaign of Dungeons and Dragons when I was a kid. I think I was like 13. Um, and then World of Warcraft released. I, pl- I played World of Warcraft since the vanilla beta. So, <laughs> I, I'm probably going to have to leave the D&D stuff to you, Odegu. <laughs> and, and there's a small problem with that. Um, I've never played D&D. See, here's the thing. All of my friends, minus Nova, have played D&D. That part being said. That part okay, being have set. you played any tabletop roleplay games? No. Okay. So what we should probably do for next month's episode is find somebody who is very familiar with tabletop roleplay games and bring them on as a guest. I know a few people. I just have to talk with them. Okay. Like I said, it, it seems like everybody I know plays it. Well, I mean, not you, but... <laughs> It seems so many people play D&D and then somehow I'm not involved for one reason or another, usually due to time constraints or such and such. Yeah. 
So you talk to your people. I will I will put out an APB um on social medias for my people, see if anybody that I know uh would be willing to come on and talk about tabletop role play games. Um you do the same, um if we each find up with somebody who's interested, maybe we'd bring two people on, get two different perspectives on it. Um Well I I will tell you our third member of team Aeon still does run D&D, or at least she did when she had the time. Um, she's very well versed in it. I don't know if she's available, but that's who I'm going to ask. Okay, we can do that. Um, I've got a couple people uh, that I'm going to ask. Um, so we'll see what we can pull together, because um, the, the biggest challenge is going to be finding somebody on my end who can record at one, two o'clock in the morning. <laughs> yeah, well, you, you gotta off and be off being a superhero lady, so, you know. Yeah, so, um, and you know what? I think this might even be an awesome time to invite any of our listeners who have experience with tabletop role-playing game. Maybe we have a listener who has literally gone from tabletop role-playing game to um, computer or console gaming and would like to come on and talk about their experience as a guest. This might even be a great op. Let, let's do that too. Let's, let's open that doorway up. Um, if you are somebody who has experience with, um, both tabletop and, uh, screen RPGs, please contact us on our social medias. Get in touch with us, let us know, and we will be in contact with you, and maybe we can work out something to get you on the show. I know uh, we we strive really hard to get listener involvement, um, and this is definitely one way we can look at trying to get that to happen. Oh, definitely. Yeah. So, I think this is a good stopping point. I really don't have anything else to say on either subject. What about you, Ms. Yeah, I mean, Ooh. final thoughts for me um, is the takeaway that I have from this subject is I find it amazing that these authors, because you're an author, I'm an author, um, and you ask yourself, you know, will anybody really care about what I'm writing, you know? A, a few months from now, a year from now, and these have stood the test of time where a lot of works that are good, uh, but they really aren't talked about anymore, even if they were popular in their time. So, yeah, that's a, that's a very good point, and I, I think that is a distinction. I think uh, 40, I think 30, 40, 50 years from now, Stephen King is going to be lit is going to be considered classic literature, uh, right along with um, the people that we talked about today. I think Stephen King is well on his way to that. Oh yeah, if he's not even there, and I like even R.L. Stein, um, which people think is yeah, he's a kid. You know, he writes for kids. He has that same ability to tell stories. Yeah. 
um, R.L. Stein. I, the reason why I hesitate to lump them in now is because they're still alive. Yeah. You know, in their time, the classic literature writers that we so love and adore were considered modern revolutionaries. If even that, Charles Dickens was selling his books by the chapter. You know, these are authors, a lot of times, who didn't gain popularity until well after death. Yeah. There wasn't, there was no such thing as classic literature when these people were alive. So, I, I, I think it, it's too early to consider R.L. Stein and Stephen King as members of the classic literature group. I, I think uh, that sometime after their death, they will eventually be lumped in with them. Um, I think we need to have a few more generations born before that can happen. Yeah, probably. So, well, it is 2.30 in the morning, which is 2.30 in the afternoon for me. But I'm working on a new fan fiction project <laughs> that uh, I want to get the first chapter published uh, this weekend. So, and until next time, everybody. This is Donoghue. And this is Monet. We are Cheeky Geeky. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye.